remain standing for this morning's gospel lesson. It comes from the gospel according to St. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. And Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, so as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when, he, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Each year, the Sunday before we begin our Lenten journey, we take time to celebrate the transfiguration of Christ on the high mountaintop with Peter, James, and John. It's a set-apart day, and year after year, it is typically the only time, in worship at least, that we read and observe this story in the life of Jesus. This text appears in the Gospels of Matthew, Luke, and as we are looking today, Mark. To put it simply, this text tells a story unlike any other that we see in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I imagine that this scripture comes with a variety of feelings. For some, this text is found to be glorious and beautiful. For others, I would guess that you might find this story to be strange, and perhaps others of you fall somewhere in between. I've grown to love this piece of scripture. I would not say that that was always the case, though, but over time, I have grown to appreciate it like I appreciate Jesus' parables. I don't mean this from a standpoint of if it did or did not happen like the parables, but I mean it in the way that they are not cut and dry. Black and white are always easy to come to a clear understanding of what the scripture is conveying. They are special from a standpoint in which they truly reveal to us the reality that scripture is living and breathing and can always reveal new thoughts and ideas to us. I'm a firm believer that each time we read a piece of scripture, whether it's the first time that we hear the text or time number 1000 that we read it, the Holy Spirit may speak to us and reveal something to us that we have not noticed before. Something that we used to read one way may be read differently this time. 
Our experience, reason, and tradition can inform us differently each time reading. Since the transfiguration and parables often do not have an abundantly cut and dry meaning, this can be especially true for them. Have you ever thought that you were pulling something off when in reality you weren't? It has been a joke among friends of mine for over a decade that I have a tendency to be quite cheap. I like to think of it as good stewardship, but from time to time I learned that my financial corner cutting isn't working and sometimes it may even be costing me more. I wear dress shirts or button downs just about every day. On Sundays and Wednesdays and other days situationally, that dress shirt is a white dress shirt. For years, in what I thought was a way to save money, instead of dry cleaning those shirts, I would wash them myself, typically in cold water with whatever else needed washing. Another economical habit that I have developed over the years is my favorite kind of pen. In high school, as a sports lover, I worked part-time for Jeff Shearer, who was the sports director at WSFA at the time. He introduced me to a wonderful type of pen, the Pilot P700. It's hands down the best value pen that there is. I'm someone that the way that I write with most pens, I have a curse of smearing what's already been written as I go on. My hand smudges what's been written. Does anyone else have this problem? I know that lots of left-handed people often have this problem. The P700, though, has a really strong and fine ink. For me, it doesn't smear, and it looks as if you've written with a nice, expensive pen, when in reality, it's a pen that you can usually get for under a dollar per pen. Since I find them to be quality, and because they're inexpensive, they're easy and reliable to take around with you. And when you take pens with you from time to time, you end up with them in your pocket. And sometimes, on September 24th of 2023, <laughs> you forget that they're in your pocket and you wash a load of your dress shirts and they come out looking just a little worse than what they did when they went in. So, after my own attempts to bleach them, I walked with my tail between my legs into the dry cleaners with hopes and dreams that the shirts could be salvaged. When there, I received the sad news, the words, oh, honey. <laughs> That's what I call government ink. It goes on important documents where it will never come out. So, continuing on the theme, sadly, I organized the shirts and figured out which could still be worn with a jacket or which could be worn with a sweater vest or which ones needed to be thanked for a life well lived. 
Even worse, a week and a half later on October 4th, another P700 found its way into the washing machine. And now having almost all of my dress shirts destroyed, I knew that something had to change. Just a few weeks later, on an October or November Sunday, one that felt a little more like a July or August day than a fall day, I only had vest-only shirts cleaned. After worship, Sarah Beth, Dr. Cooper, Susan, and I went to lunch, and with temperatures around 80 degrees, they politely asked, why are you wearing a sweater vest <laughs> under a suit in this temperature? When I explained that I only had partially destroyed shirts cleaned that morning, they even more politely told me that my best white shirt was at its best beige <laughs> and a little frayed. I had suspected this after years of cold water washing with colors, but I thought that I was getting away with it and pulling it off. I wasn't. Even before the ink debacle, my shirt washing was the minimum and not leading to a crisp white shirt. Lucky for me, you can imagine what was at the top of my Christmas list this year. And kindly, Sarah Beth, Jay and Susan, my parents and Sarah Beth's parents, all separately restored my pastoral closet with dress shirts. And not one of them has touched our washing machine. I found that dry cleaning is cheaper and better for the shirts than shirt replacement. Fortunately, Inkgate 2023 is over, but it certainly brings a new perspective for me to this text. Mark tells us that when Jesus is transfigured before them, his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew similarly acknowledges, but in a different way, that when Jesus was transfigured, his clothes became bright as light. Similarly, but different, Luke tells us that his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. It's not entirely perplexing or peculiar that Jesus' clothing is described, but of all of the things to acknowledge and reflect upon in this glorious moment, all three mention the clothing of a man whose clothes are rarely mentioned elsewhere in the Gospels, at least without significance. This story of the transfiguration is told rather succinctly in each of those three Gospels, but they each note the clothing. Better yet, it's not told by the Gospel writers in a way that conveyed that they heard the exact same thing from the same person with the same descriptions, but between bleach and light and lightning, the clothes were spectacular enough to be mentioned and described in three different ways. In an altogether breathtaking experience, the transfiguration, there was something especially breathtaking about Jesus' clothes. In a time before washing machines and even something similar to our modern detergents, laundry was a very different activity. In an arid climate where most travel was on foot, we can imagine that clothing would have likely gotten quite dirty. 
without spin cycles or free and clear or fabric softener, washing clothes would have been a very labor-intensive activity. If you were doing it for someone else, it was either a labor of love or a labor of servitude. Typically, people would dip their clothes in and out of water at a stream or pool. Sometimes, usually, people would then lay the clothes out and beat them with a club to get them clean. Cleaning wouldn't be a simple rinse or soaking, but it would require kneading and hard work. Someone that utilizes the minimal modern attention like me, of simply throwing it in the washing machine, would not have cut it very well. In first century Israel, how white someone's clothing was stood as a symbol of their respectability and or their immense skill at doing laundry. Reverend Sue Eves says the apex of achievement at the time was someone whose laundry was recognized as whitest and brightest. Kings, high-ranking officials, and wealthy people would have white clothing that was bright and flashy. They had it not because they, had, they did the labor-intensive laundry, but more so that they employed people or had slaves that were required to make it so. As you might know, that purple clothing was a sign of royalty and power. Crisp white clothing in Jesus' time was as well. Bright white clothing signified that you had power. Perhaps this is why each of the gospel writers draws special and particular attention to the detail of Jesus' clothing on that mountaintop. Mark's phrasing of this is probably the best for amplifying this point around the text. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white so as no one on earth could bleach them. Such as no one on earth could bleach them. If we know that well-done laundry and bright whites are fit for a king, what might it be saying about Jesus that his white clothing is so bright that not a single person on earth could accomplish that crispness, even for a king? This passage sits at the epicenter of Mark's gospel. It is at chapter 9 of 16. One could make the argument that aligning with this passage, that the gospel of Mark builds up to this moment at the top of the mountain. And as Jesus and the three disciples do, the rest of the book comes down from that mountaintop. In the passage before this one, Jesus and the disciples are in Caesarea Philippi, And Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? After some dialogue, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. In the moment, it seems that he gets it. What Peter has in mind, though, is a worldly king who will restore the kingdom of David. Then... Jesus goes on to tell them that because he is the Messiah, he will undergo great suffering, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. Peter doesn't much care for Jesus' interpretation of who the Messiah is. 
and what that means, and he boldly rebukes Jesus. Jesus then rebukes Peter back and says, get behind me, Satan, to him. Yikes. That dialogue ends with where our text begins today in verse 1. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, as three of those disciples, Peter, James, and John, are on the mountaintop with Jesus at the transfiguration, perhaps it was then that they saw the kingdom of God come with power. Instead of words, as Jesus' messiahship is revealed within chapter 8, here in chapter 9, at the transfiguration, actions reveal Jesus' messiahship. There is an argument that can be made that in the story of the transfiguration, these nine verses, the entire truth of the gospel is revealed. As Jesus is transfigured on that mountaintop, Peter, James, and John see the curtain between heaven and earth torn through. Jesus, by way of miraculously bright white clothing, is revealed as a king that is better and more glorious than any other king that earth could imagine. Not just that, but this is revealed in the presence of the great Elijah and Moses, who even them appear to be subjects under King Jesus. In this portion of the story, the reality of the resurrected Jesus seems to be shown. And in this glorious spectacle, God makes it clear that Jesus is the beloved and his words are to be listened to. And from that moment, the whole story of Jesus comes into fruition. For he chooses not to stay up there in glory, but to descend the mountain of his glory, to return back to his sacrifice for humanity. These nine verses of Jesus leaving glory for the sake of humanity are a microcosm of the whole gospel in Jesus' gospel sacrifice, for he chose others over himself. There's a reality of the human condition alive in this story which sets it as perhaps the pinnacle of Mark's gospel. In chapter 8, Peter and the disciples struggle to hear and listen to the words that Jesus says to them. Then, here in the transfiguration in chapter 9, Jesus' sacrifice and messiahship is made known, and God uses that miraculous event to tell them that they need to listen to Jesus. There is a realization in that story and in our lives that it is a lot easier to tell someone about Jesus after you have shown them Jesus. So as we prepare to embark on our Lenten journey, a journey toward Easter, may we consider how we too can be called from a transfigured era to see the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and make sacrifices for others. In being Christ-like, may we put aside our own glory, come down from our mountaintop moments that we might be able to show others Christ's love in our actions. 
In three days, Lent begins. People will give up things and people will take on things. My challenge this day for each of us is that we may each take something on that reveals the transfigured Christ to someone else, even if it's in the smallest way. Maybe it's a daily note of compassion, love, and care. Maybe it's a daily gift to someone in need. Maybe it's a random act of kindness for the person behind you in the grocery store. Whatever it is, like we see at the Transfiguration, we can show others Christ with more than just words. Christ has been shown and revealed to us. We are to show and reveal him to others. To the glory of God. Amen.